Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Hope y'all are having a wonderful one out there. If you are new to I Believe Now What, we are a podcast directed at building up in grace and knowledge the body of Christ, just edifying that body, giving Christians the tools to equip them. And obviously, don't worry, I know you can do this all yourself. You have a Bible, I would hope. If you don't, you need to get one. You have a Bible, you got the internet, you got tools, you got resources, and obviously that's why I do this podcast, because why not? Why not use this technology in advantage to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and just building up and equipping and edifying those who are believers? So with that being said, today's episode, as it is a, well, if you're listening to this in the future, it is a new start to 2021. We're out of 2020, we're in 2021, and I thought it best to let's go back to the roots. Let's go back to the roots of what, how we believe, what we believe as Protestant Christians. And yes, I know I say the word roots weird. I Ever since I moved down to Louisiana, I'm originally from Ohio, apparently that's a Midwest thing. Uh, they all laughed at me down here and like, it's roots, and I'm like, same difference, but apparently not to them. They also think I say crick funny instead of creek, creek instead of crick. <sighs> Whatever. Doesn't matter. Tomato, tomato, in my opinion. Anyways, so I thought it was really good idea at the beginning of the new year. So let's go ahead and dive into why we are Protestant Christians and how we got there in the history. Yes, we are going to be talking about the Reformation. And when I say we're going to be talking about the Reformation, I mean we are going to be talking about it. We're going to go over a whole bunch of stuff. Now, obviously, this is going to be a very broad study, and I don't want to deceive anybody out there. I am not a uh, seven-year seminary grad student in Christian history, but I do a lot of resourcing, I do a lot of studying, and I compiled a whole bunch of information to kind of just go over these different topics and these different uh points of the Reformation, so that way we can understand how we got to where we are now. And this is going to lead into a whole bunch of other series that I plan to do throughout 2021. So once we talk about the Reformation, and then we're going to go into different denominations, I hope, and I wanted to do this last year, but it was hard with 2020 and COVID and all that stuff to schedule everything out, but to talk to different people who came Uh, from those different denominations and talk about that a little bit and how we got those denominations. And I also want to do a series on Bibles. Yes, Bibles, because obviously the Bible is so important to us. And I really want us to understand the Bible, how we got it, where it came from, who wrote what, and honestly, like really get into the different versions of the Bible and why, what different scholars say on Bible translations, what's the most reliable, what's the least reliable, why are there so many translations? We're going to get into all that this year, Lord willing. But for today, we are going to kick off our series on the Reformation. And this is an introductory episode, obviously, but it is very highly encouraged that you go ahead and listen to this. I mean, you know what, unless you really already know everything about the Reformation and you just want to skip ahead. And obviously, Once again, I can't iterate this enough. I am not a seven-year scholar on this. I've just compiled a lot of information, and I want to get you that information, a very easy, understandable package. 
So once again, this episode is going to be, we're just going to talk about the different episodes we're going to have, and then we're going to get into our actual introduction. So the first one is going to be the introduction to Protestantism, and we're going to give the background of the Reformation. Following that, we're going to go ahead and get into the five solas. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. We're going to break it down and go over it. And then, following that, we're going to have a nice episode on the actual reformers. And obviously, there's so many of them. We're not going to be able to get into all of them. But we are going to do a nice overview of some of the big names in the Reformation on how we got the Christian faith we are today because of these guys. And obviously, lastly, we are going to go into how we got all these different denominations from the Reformation, and that will lead in our denomination series that we will do later on. But anyways, digressing on, let's get into this episode, the background of the Reformation. And before we jump straight into this, I do want to say I compiled most of my information from a few different sources, one uh, specifically a website dedicated to the Reformation. I got a lot of information from the Master's Seminary, from Westminster Theological Seminary, and lots and lots of sermons. And if you want to know that list, just go ahead and let me know. I'll throw you uh, something if there's any interest on it, obviously, because I want to be transparent. I will throw that on the Facebook page and the Twitter. Just go ahead and let me know if that's something that you want. Anyways, once again digressing on, Let's get into the background of the Reformation. So, October 31st, the year was 1517. And I can already hear some theological heads rolling. Oh, you know, the Reformation actually started a lot longer before that. Yes, I understand. But we're going to go ahead by traditional accounts. All right, Martin Luther, a man who lived from 1483 to 1546, put up his 95 Theses. And if you don't know what that is, we're going to go over it. So don't worry. They were discussion points on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And Luther's major concern that started all this was the practice of selling what was called indulgences. So indulgences, if you do not know, were this was this idea that was developed by the Catholic Church. They needed to fund the Vatican. They needed to fund all their building projects and everything they do. If you've never checked it out, just go Google the Vatican. It's this huge array of self-righteousness that does not glorify God in any way. At least not in my opinion. It's definitely not biblical, that's for sure. Anyways, moving on. Indulgences were... This is the way it was defined in the Catechism of the Catholic Church as a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which is obviously a bunch of crock. These indulgences were being sold to reduce, and in some cases, if you had enough money, eliminate the time that the dear departed souls would have to spend in purgatory. And if you don't know what purgatory is, this is a totally made-up place that's not in the Bible anywhere that the Catholics say is where the departed would go to expedite their sins before admission into heaven. And I know I sound very mocking right now, but this is a false gospel, y'all. This is a false gospel that is nowhere in the Bible and is created in the minds of men. So what does all this have to do with Martin Luther. Well, Martin Luther's actions are usually held to mark the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Not only that, 
but they mark the, 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 they represent, that's a better word. They represent pretty much just the culmination of a crazy long period where the Bible was being darkened. The Bible was only printing into Latin in this time. The mass, the Catholic mass where they all come together was being said in Latin. Nobody spoke Latin unless you were rich or educated or both. Latin was not the language of the people, but yet that was the only language that was allowed to be said in. So the Bible was in the dark. People didn't know what was in the Bible, and they were pretty much told, trust what we say. And obviously that's how control starts. Every good pastor that I have ever met will always tell you to double-check him according to the Word, according to the Bible. If you are thinking yourself as Christ on this earth and you can say whatever you want and you don't want people to double-check you, well, then you definitely need to do some soul-search and examine yourself to see if you are of the faith. Always. And that goes for me too, by the way. Always double check me, double check your pastor, double check anybody who is preaching the word to you, not only just to make sure that they are, have your best interest in mind and they are preaching you the truth, but also maybe they made a mistake. I make lots of mistakes and I am very appreciative when somebody points that out to me. So I think I need to give a little bit more background on the Pope, the Catholic Church and all this and how this played in. It's not like it was today. The Catholic Church had major influence in politics and pretty much were running multiple nations. Nobody stood against the church. And this is the way it was throughout the Middle Ages. The Western Church with the Pope at the center was the beating heart of the European society. And he had a lot of influence. And honestly, at the height of his power, it came during the year 1198 to 1216. Uh, that was like pretty much like the, the, the crescendo of the Catholic Church's power, although they held power for quite a long time after that. I don't want to diminish that. These guys controlled everything. And that was when uh, that, that time period was where they pretty much mandated complete subordination to the church. In other words, you do what we say. And that was in one of their decrees. You know, even during this time, there were some people who undermine the supremacy of the Pope and the Catholic Church. And, I mean, there was a great example where French kings were disputing over the papacy of succession. Uh, they even located the papal court to France at that time. There's many other examples. But just because the Catholic Church was the supreme authority in that time doesn't mean that everybody followed along with everything. But I don't want to diminish in any way, shape, or form the amount of influence the church had in those days. But right around the time, and this is what I'm really getting at, right around the time of the early 1400s was really when people kind of started wanting to break away from that power scheme and exercise themselves under their own authority instead of the Catholic Church or the Pope's authority. And this is what's setting up the Reformation. Now, I do want to say, I mean, I don't want to diminish. There's a lot of pre-Reformation movements that went on that were really identified the corruption that was going on within the church, and they were fighting against it, even as far back as the 10th and the 11th centuries. And honestly, probably even before that, but the written information, obviously, is not as vast because the Catholic Church was controlling a lot of that written information. 
And we'll get more into that as we go on. Good case in point in early Reformation movements was the Waldessians. Now, the Waldessians, they take their name from a man named Peter Waldo. He was a, uh, I guess you would say a amateur preacher, or the better term is a lay preacher, a layman. I don't know if you ever heard of that before. Pretty much someone who was not school trained. Uh, they just read the Bible on their own. And this was in 12th century France. Waldo gathered together a group of people known as the poor men who devoted themselves. These guys devoted themselves to a life of simplicity and poverty. Now, these people, they actually sought approval to preach and they were pretty much denied. And well, the result of that is they just didn't listen and they did what they wanted to and preached the word anyways. And the Catholic Church was not very happy about that because, you know, the whole control thing. They didn't have control over it. Uh, poor people reading the Bible in their own language. Oh, my gosh. No, no. Only the Catholic Church can tell you what's in the Bible. Just another example of that. This group became very, very vital in all of, of, of a lot of setting up a lot of this Protestant movement, and they were opposing the church in a lot of ways. And really, even such doctrines as purgatory, they saw through the garbage that is purit, uh, purgatory, prayers for the dead, which is nowhere in the Bible, and refusing to take solemn oaths that the Catholic Church mandated. They also denied the full authority of the church to interpret scripture. So in other words, they had a sense that, hey, look, we have the Holy Spirit. We can interpret scripture for ourselves because that's what the Bible actually says. You have the Holy Spirit. You no longer need teachers to teach you everything. Are teachers good? Absolutely. Teachers are great. But you can read the words for yourself and you have the Holy Spirit, which was given to you as a gift from God to interpret scriptures. And these people were reading their Bible, seeing that in the Bible, and saying, hey, something's not adding up here. Two plus two doesn't equal six. It equals four. And all this stuff the Catholic Church is forcing us to do makes no sense. This movement went and spread to a lot of other countries. It gained some real traction, and especially in Italy and Bohemia, where it underwent really bad persecution. I mean, bad. Just Google it. But, but it survived. I mean, that's that's God. That has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. That has to be the work of God, and particularly, uh, it survived in the Piedmont region of Italy. Now, this is a little key. In 1532, this man named William Farrell, a friend and associate of John Calvin, met with the Waldensian leaders and persuaded them. And if you don't know William Farrell, John Calvin, don't worry. We're going to go over it. But these, they met with the Waldessian leaders, and persuaded them to adopt Protestantism, specifically Reformed Tradition Protestantism. Now, if you don't know what Reformed Tradition Protestantism is, we will get over that in our denomination series on the Reformation. Uh, give you a good brief overview of it. This specific movement that we're talking about now underwent a crazy huge persecution in France in 14, uh, as you were, 1545, which resulted in pretty much their virtual elimination from that country. But however, in 1561, freedom to worship was granted to the Waldessians in Italy. And it was not until 1848, though, that they were granted civil rights. Crazy it took that long, but awesome that it happened. 
they saw the corruption in the church and wanted to change it. And there's so much more we can get into with the Waldessians and the persecution and the horrible schemes the Catholic Church plotted against them. But today, the Waldessian Evangelical Church comprises of around 40,000 members, and in 1975, recent history, it actually merged with the Italian Methodist Church to form the Union of Methodist and Waldessian Churches. So there's a good example of surviving from those dark ages. The next pre-Reformation person I want to point out was John Wycliffe. He lived from 1324 to 1384, and he was born in Yorkshire. And this is around, uh, what, what did I say, 1324. This guy, he was actually edu- very well educated at Oxford University, actually, and he received his doctorate in theology. Now, in 1374, he actually took part in a dispute that was going on between the Pope and the King of England over tribute payments to the Pope. In other words, the Pope was saying, hey, you got to pay me tribute money. Money, 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 money. You could see a little trend there. And he was a major factor in this dispute. The dispute actually surfaced around 1365 when Parliament declared that the Pope had no right to demand such payments, and the matter was dropped. England kind of said, Pope, we ain't buying into it. Wycliffe argued against these payments and wrote several articles criticizing the power of the church and supporting parliament. Now, you might think to yourself, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was is if you went against the Catholic church, you were pretty much one the pope would... He has the power, and I'm using little quotation marks here, the power to excommunicate from you from the church and probably ultimately damn you to hell. At least that's what many people believed. We obviously know that's not true. And your life was at stake, I it, literally at its stake, because they would burn you at the stake for being a heretic or for not doing what they said. So this was a very big deal. It's definitely not like it is today. So now Wycliffe... He published this work, and I'm going to chop and screw this up because I don't think I ever say it right, but De Civelli Dominio. Hopefully I said that right. If I said it wrong, please someone correct me because I don't want to be saying these things wrong. But essentially that article, that published work, uh, was arguing that the authority of any institution depended on grace and thus could be forfeited when mortal sin was present in that institution. What Wycliffe was doing here was he was denying the authority of the Pope. Once again, this is a huge deal then. And also denying what is we know as transubstantiation. And this is a Roman Catholic doctrine, if you don't know what it is. It's a Roman Catholic doctrine that the Eucharist, uh, communion, the Lord's Supper that they believe that when you take communion, that the actual bread becomes the flesh of Jesus and the actual blood, or as you were, the wine, becomes the actual blood of Jesus once the Catholic priest does his ritual to it and he has the power to do that. So like you're literally, they believe they're literally eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood which is not biblical at all. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. It said nothing about, this is literally my flesh you're eating here. And every time people do this, you're literally eating my flesh. It says nothing like that. 
do this in remembrance. Ceremonial. Should we do communion? Should we take the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. We can go into that all day long. That is a beautiful thing. And honestly, I don't think churches do it enough. I, If I was running a church, I'd probably do it every week, honestly, because I, I really see the importance of the Lord's table. But that's another topic. What Wycliffe was doing was denying that, saying, hey, look, the Bible does not support this transubstantiation where you believe that the bread and wine change into the actual body of blood of Christ. As a result of this, Wycliffe found himself losing a lot of support at Oxford. They were scared, and they didn't want to oppose that because this is what they were taught their whole lives. He also began now to send out Wycliffe followers called the poor preachers. A lot of poor here, you know, the poor men with the Waldessians. Now the poor preachers with Wycliffe. And who they these poor preachers, they went around the country spreading Wycliffe's views. And his overall concern, what he really wanted to see, was the church imitate the life of Jesus Christ more clearly with a life of poverty and a life of simplicity. Instead of all the high pomp and robes and lavish lifestyles and money and everything that you still see the pope doing today i don't that's nowhere in the bible these robes and the money and the huge fancy buildings and all this to treating this man like he is christ on earth which he is not wickliffe went on to say an amazing quote during these times he said the church is the totality of those who are predestined to blessedness. It includes the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant or men on earth. No one who is eternally lost has part in it. There is one universal church, and outside of it there is no salvation. Its head is Christ. No pope may say that he is the head, for he cannot say, that he is elect or even a member of the church. Wow. I can't iterate enough how big of a deal a quote like this was in a time like that. He is literally saying the Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is the only head of the church. And it even goes on to say that he's not even elect, or he can't say that he is one of the elect or even a member of that universal church. And by the way, Catholic church literally means universal church, if you didn't know that. The word Catholic church is not a bad thing. It's the Roman Catholic church that dirtied it up. And honestly, in 1378, Wycliffe did something amazing. And maybe it was done before this, but this is the earliest, I believe, that we know of. He worked on a translation of the Bible into English. But that translation was rejected by the church as being unauthorized and therefore invalid. It's not in Latin. You can't do it. So he started getting a group of followers around him. And these people, eventually, in uh, 1382, his teachings were condemned by a church court, and Wycliffe was forced to leave Oxford. John Wycliffe died in 1384. But because of his desire to reform the church, Wycliffe, he's, he's often called the morning star of the Reformation. His views were to have a significant influence on the next man that we're about to go over, and his name is John Huss. 
Now, John Huss, he was born in what was called then Bohemia, which is now called the Czech Republic. He, the writings of John Wycliffe came to be known in this region, and Huss became deeply, deeply sympathetic to them. At the time, the church was going through a major, major bad time, which is known as the Great Schism. And just a short overview on that, that was where pretty much there were rival popes, uh, one declaring they're the pope, another declaring they're the pope, and there was a pretty much an, an argument over it. And we got out of that what is known as the Great Schism. We'll touch into that later on. And just as Wycliffe was, Huss also refused to accept the Pope's supremacy, and Huss was actually excommunicated from the church in 1410. Now, this great schism that I talked about before, it lasted all the way until 1414. And this is when a church council was convened at Constance, Germany. Huss was tried at this council. He was convicted of heresy. And when asked to recant, this is what Huss said. He said, God is my witness that I have never taught that which I have by false witnesses been accused. In the truth of the gospel which I have written, taught and preached, I will die today with gladness. After saying that, John Huss was burned at the stake, still protesting his innocence and the belief in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in 1999, Pope John Paul II formally apologized for Huss's execution, as if that really meant something. See, and this is something that you see a lot of today in the Catholic Church. Uh, they want to ignore this very dirty and dark, mired past of theirs, but they can't because they were wrong, and they're still wrong. They're kind of like a chameleon. They change with the times, and they change how they can. With the advent of the internet and people obviously, sadly, not looking to God, they don't have the amount of influence they had before. So to gain influence, they use pragmatism. And, oh, you know, well, well I, I for me apologize for Huss's execution. Yeah, 500 years later. So a series, but out of John Huss, a series of conflicts known as the Hussite Wars took place in Bohemia between 1419 to 1434. The followers of Huss put a doctrine out there, and I'm going to mess this word up. I got it written down here, and I'm, I know I'm going to check it up, but it's called ultraquism. In other words, this is the view that both the bread and the wine should be given to all during communion service rather than restricting the wine to the clergy. This view was actually accepted. Now, I know some of you former Catholics might be like, huh? So that's how it was then. And obviously, this view was accepted by the Roman Catholic Church as part of the compacts or agreements in ending that war that lasted in 1567. So once again, you just see the corruption. Communion wasn't even given to everybody. It was only given to the clergy then. They were denying them Remembering Lord Jesus, our Christ, our Lord. Those wars lasted until around 1567. I do want to say it was also recorded down that Huss had a pretty 
the spot on prophecy on the future in the course of reform. And I'm not going to say this is a prophecy that he received from God or anything like this. Maybe he just put two and two together and saw this coming, but pretty crazy how accurate this was. He said, in 100 years, God will raise up a man who calls for reform and cannot be suppressed. Not too long after that, in fact, almost 100 years, is when Martin Luther stepped into the picture. Now, this next part, while it's not really Protestantism, but in a way it is protesting the church and it dampered the Catholic Church itself, was the Renaissance and the idea of humanism. Now, the Renaissance itself, it lasted a really long time, from about the 14th to the 16th centuries. And it was a real powerful movement, which had a lot of effects in the political, philosophical, and artistic, religious realms. Now, humanism, this was something that was really underlying the Renaissance. Humanists, these people believed that the best models of learning came from the classic ancient Greek and Roman civilizations. During this time period, you had a lot of different movements getting started. I mean, a lot. But I think it's really good to put an emphasis on one, which was really the combination of a Christian and humanist viewpoint, where these ideas were found in the movement known as Christian humanism. Now, what this Christian humanism was, was they put a primary, they put an emphasis on pretty much studying the scriptures as a primary source, along with the writings of the early church fathers. One of these men was a man named Erasmus. And Erasmus produced a version of the New Testament in Greek, which actually appeared in 1516 and thus gave scholars something to compare against the Latin Vulgate, or in other words, what I said before, the, the fact that the Latin was the only way the Bible should be translated, even though that's nowhere near the original language. Yeah, whatever. Erasmus just wanted the scriptures to be made available to all. And this was evidenced by his remarks in the preface of what he wrote. He said, I could wish that these were translated into each and every language, that the farmer might sing snatches of scripture at his plow, and that the weaver might hum phrases of scripture to the tune of his shuttle. And honestly, I loved the idea that Erasmus had because this is the way it should be. His ideas represented a different approach to the method for carrying out reform. But his reform program came to be overshadowed by what Martin Luther did. And that's why some people have put it, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. Now, with all this stuff going on, I would be remiss to not talk about some of the social changes that were happening during this time. And one of the huge ones was the invention of the movable printing press. And that was created by Jonathan Gutenberg. This was crucial to the propagation of reformed ideas, of getting these ideas out there. Books and pamphlets became so much more widely available and the literacy grew, particularly in the towns, which themselves were beginning to grow. It also meant that ideas and concepts judged heretical by the Catholic Church would be harder to control. Erasmus's work, The Handbook of the Christian Soldier from 1503, was an appeal to 
educated men and women who Erasmus regarded as the church's most important resource. This production of Bibles in the vernacular, in the modern language that the common people spoke during that time. So if you were German, you got one in German. If you're English, you got one in English. If you were whatever country you're from, whatever language you spoke, you would have one in yours. That's what it means to say in the vernacular. And a great example of this was in 1466 when the German Bible came out. You can really see that Erasmus's vision was starting to take hold. Now, another event that was happening during this time, and we're getting close to the end here. I know this has been a long one, but I have to mention the Black Death. This led to the death of millions and millions of people. And honestly, what this did was everybody started to be very, very preoccupied and obsessed with death. And the Catholic Church was there to step in and relieve those fears. Hey, give us a bunch of money and we'll forgive your sins. We'll get your loved ones out of purgatory. You don't have to worry about life in the next. We got you covered. Just do what we say and you don't, don't ask us any questions. I know I'm being very, very cruel. But what they did was even crueler in taking advantage of people during this time. But once the Black Death was starting to subside and society began to recover, and this was around the 15th century, that power of the traditional aristocracy, the power of the church, all that was being increasingly challenged by the emergence of the entrepreneur. Yes, people who wanted to start businesses, people who started businesses, people who wanted to foster an attitude of individual identity where no longer where just because you were born of this person means you have to live this way. No, their social positions and statuses could be self-determined by the individual. This was just another blow setting up and fueling the Reformation and for what Martin Luther was about to do. So we're going to go ahead and end today's episode on that. And tomorrow we're going to get into our next one where we go over the five solas, because I think that's very, very important to the Reformation. And I want to leave you with this, some wise words that John Wycliffe said. He said, I believe that in the end, truth will conquer. Thanks again, once again, everybody. If you listened all this way, I know it was jam-packed information, a lot of stuff being said. If you want to go ahead and read about this stuff for yourself, please, I, I, I got most of my information for today's episode from a place called Protestantism, uh, eh, Protestantism.co.uk. And I pulled it from other places, uh, sermons and Googling and research and YouTube and all this other stuff. But most of my information and my layout came from that website, Protestantism, Protestantism.co.uk. All right. Well, once again, have a great one out there. Have a good start to 2021. I'm going to be hope. Let's go ahead and end this out in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we are glorifying and edifying you with this history as we talk about how you brought this church out of the darkness, Lord, and back into the light the way you intended. I pray that everything that I am saying, Lord, is true to what actually happened. And I pray, Lord, that your truth will come out of this. 
Thank you so much for all you do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, all right, tomorrow, well, not tomorrow. I got to record tomorrow, but uh, the next episode should be dropped two days from now, and that's going to be on, once again, the five solas. Y'all have a good one. This is Tim with I Believe Now What, out. <laughs>